Thanks, Andy. Uh, one of the exciting things we have as that staff team grows is the opportunity to train more staff workers. Uh, it's great to have Chris as part of his training. It's great to have E as part of his training as God's raising up leaders amongst us out of this community uh, to further his work he's doing in the world. And that's something we're really glad to participate in. Certainly there are need for more harvest workers uh, around our denomination and around churches in the world. Uh, let's uh, open up to Jonah chapter 2. We're going to be following this through uh, pretty much the whole thing today. So have it in front of you uh, because it'll help you pick up some of the bits that I refer to uh, as we go along. Um, and as we do that, I'd love to pray for us, uh, particularly picking up some words that Paul uses at the beginning of his letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are the living God. Thank you that you have chosen us uh, and loved us as your people, that you've gathered us here together today uh, in this local place uh, to encourage one another to hear from you uh, and to honour and glorify you. Uh, please uh, do what you did amongst those Thessalonians where the gospel came not simply with words but with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Please do in our hearts what only you can do today, we pray. Amen. Now, have you ever had milk that's turned? We've all been there. Uh, that first, uh, that nasty sip of coffee or uh, that mouthful of breakfast cereal that doesn't taste quite right. It still looks good in the bottle. Uh, it appears that it's okay, but milk goes from being good to being dicey but passable to being turned and too far gone. It's not useful for anything anymore. Only our dog will drink it. As we get to Jonah chapter 2, it's worth asking the question, is Jonah too far gone? In chapter 1, he said nope to God. And the indications within that passage is that he's actually more interested in dying than he is in fulfilling what God's purposes are to him. Today we find then Jonah at prayer and this is a prayer that kind of draws the book together as we get a chance to look in on what's going on in Jonah's head and the things that are motivating his decisions. In the utter distress of his situation he's called out to God and God has heard his prayer. God sent a fish and he saved him and Jonah lived happily ever after and even went to Nineveh. That's how the story of the fish goes isn't it? It makes, a, it makes a really good children's story, except there's still two chapters of Jonah left to go. Uh, and so as we see them, uh, we look at this prayer that Jonah prays in chapter 2, and if that's all we read, it looks pretty good. Jonah's saying kind of the right things, the things we'd expect to hear. Uh, his problems seem to be behind him now. And it's a bit like how we tell our uh, Christian stories and our talk about our faith sometimes. There was a bad thing then, God fixed it, and now everything is good. As we sniff a little closer though, something is a little bit off. Even after God has miraculously saved him, something is not quite right. But that something's not his theology. 
That's actually really good. Jonah is a well-known prophet of God that has been used in that role. His language in this prayer shows that he's very well steeped in the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of Thanksgiving. He's thankful and he's grateful. The uh, sort of indications towards other parts of the Old Testament in this prayer show that he knows the Old Testament well. He's making vows and commitments to God and he's sincere in them. The bottle looks pretty good. That's the sort of things a follower of God is supposed to do. What could possibly be amiss? So this book of Jonah uh, could be described as a gentle kind of parody of uh, the people of Israel. It's designed to expose some of their distorted views and expectations of who God is and what it's like to be his people. To sift through some of that language that presents well. To lay bare actions that look pious. To reveal blind spots that would otherwise remain hidden. Now we open to that kind of exposure. Do we really want to know what God can see? Or would we be happier just having the bottle on the outside look pretty good? As we look into this heart of Jonah, we realize that hearts are complex. May God also reveal to you as we look the complexities of your own. Jonah's not the hero of this story, uh, not even by the end of the book. The book's not about a fish. It's about the deep mercy of God. A mercy that Jonah personally delights in. He's genuinely thankful for it. And yet he hasn't grasped its implications for others. So much so that he's offended by it by the end of the book. God's mercy morphs into his self-interest. In this condition... Is Jonah's heart too far gone? Not at all. God's mercy is more. A big idea today uh, is that salvation belongs to our incredibly merciful God. This is a unique and extravagant mercy. If you haven't known it, I'm really glad you're here. Spend this time pondering the kind of God that we're talking about. And if you have known it, allow yourself to be humbled by it and by its implications so that you begin to replicate its beauty. So let's jump in. Let's have a look. Our first thing to notice today is that God uh, is the God who hears prayer from the depths. Uh, have a look at Jonah 2 verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now sailors uh, were involved in this process of uh, throwing Jonah overboard, but it was God who threw him into the water. And down, down, down he goes in the next six verses. He flails about on the surface for a while 
He's engulfed by the flames by the time, uh, flames, waves by the time he gets to verse 5. And then he sinks down into the depths at the end of verse 6. The language is filled with images of judgment, death, and the realm of the dead. This Hebrew word sheol, uh, or the pit in, in poetic language. In the ancient world, the, the waters uh, below were thought to separate the realm of life above from the realm of dead, kind of below the waters. Uh, the rivers, which is translated currents in the NIV, uh, underneath the surface is supposed to be a place of judgment where the souls uh, are judged whether they're innocent or guilty. Banished from God's side in verse 4, Jonah is so close to death, he doesn't know whether he's alive or not. Is he too far gone? Is he still within the Lord's reach? Or is the realm of the dead, dead going to swallow him whole? In utter distress, he cries out to God in prayer. And disturbingly, God's answer can't be triggered by his performance. As the surface fades further and further from his view, he has no leverage against God to make him answer. In this place of no hope, Jonah turns towards God in his temple and he prays. Does the God he ignored hear? Permanent separation from God now seems inevitable. Was he moved? Seaweed uh, scraping and wrapping around his head prepares his body for burial. His lifeless form disturbs the sand as it hits the bottom. The roots of the mountains. Doorway to the grave. God allows Jonah to experience judgment. In this vivid experience of death, among wrapped in seaweed on the sea floor, he is far away from God, lifted high up on the mountain, his holy place. Will God respond? Jonah's pride is getting a severe reality check. C.S. Lewis writes this, As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see someone who is above you. In his superiority as one of God's people, Jonah has been looking in the wrong direction to see God. Now in the depths on the bottom of the seafloor, there's nowhere further down to look. With deep irony, Jonah's existence is dependent on the God he has been ignoring. Ponder that. What does human mercy do in that situation? Our mercy is limited. It's conditional. It requires people to be sorry for what they've done. 
We want to see that there's some reason why we would give out mercy. It's conditional on not repeating the same mistakes over and over again. The mercy of God is not like our mercy. God hears Jonah's cry from the depths. God sends a fish. What kind of God does that for people who have ignored him? For three days and three nights, Jonah's been in the belly of this fish, which coincides with the amount of time in the ancient world it's imagined to take to go from the realm of the dead into the realm of life. Even that far removed from the realm of life, God has heard Jonah's prayer. If you find yourself lost and broken, if you have no leverage against God to make him answer, if you feel too distant, too far gone, look to this God. His mercy is more. He heard Jonah's cry. And if that is true, he couldn't miss yours. Turn to his beautiful mercy. Cry out to him in confidence. I do also want to speak today to those who've been ignoring God. How attentive is this God that you've been ignoring to the nopes, to the I like my way better? How confident are you that he is a God that you can ignore? And how expectant are you that he will hear when you're desperate? Realize the irony of Jonah. In his pride, it took him to the brink. Today is the day to call. It is not too late. God will hear. The God who hears prayer from the depths. Second thing to notice. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Have a look at verse 6. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, bought my life out of the pit. The pit is the language the psalm uses for uh, the realm of the dead. God has snatched him up from there. On his own in the water, he faced death. Inside the fish that God provided, he was safe. We get this little hint of what it means to be in Christ. In him we are safe. Outside of him is death. Perhaps the idea of uh, three days and three nights in a fish might sound ridiculous to you. 
You can't get past the fact of kind of how, how that actually worked out, how that was possible. It's a fair question. It sounds more like a cartoon than real life. But I want to suggest to you the place to find the answer to that question is not in the book of Jonah with a fish. Uh, Jesus' journey uh, back from the realm of the dead uh, took three days. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, that happened according to the Scriptures, he's thinking back to Jonah. In that passage, he's so convinced of the importance of the resurrection that he's willing to stake the credibility of the whole Christian faith on that one historical event. Jesus does something very similar when he talks about the sign of Jonah. Jesus' resurrection is supposed to be the definitive sign of his life and ministry. And the Pharisees are so hardened against God and what he's doing that even when Jesus rises from the dead, they won't believe it. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, the fish here is pointless. If he does, the God of great power and mercy can figure out the details associated with the fish. We have uh, limited information about the fish. We're not told much about it. We have a lot of information about the resurrection, both in the Bible and in history. His resurrection is the decisive sign. Investigate that first. And don't be hardened towards its implications. Now Jonah from safe inside the fish can say in verse 6, salvation comes from the Lord. This is the central idea of the book of Jonah and it's the central idea really of the whole Old Testament. Jonah went from being prepared for a seaweed burial at the bottom of the depths to praising God with thanksgiving, living in the safety of a fish. How much of that had anything to do with Jonah? None of it. It belonged to God's mercy alone. In all of Jonah's activity within this book, positive or negative, neither God's judgment nor God's salvation is subject to human manipulation. Jonah could not thwart God's purposes at all. Something he hasn't yet fully realised, he's only going to understand later in chapter 4. It is God alone who determines the timing, the means and the objects of his saving work. And Jonah shows us just how easy it is for us as God's people to get this mixed up. Now you wouldn't say it out loud because again, our problem's not with our theology. But there are people that you assume God can't reach. They're too far gone. God wouldn't save them. He may even give you a name of someone in your head right now to ponder it. His mercy is more. God alone determines the timing, the method and the objects of his saving work in history. And that history has got a trajectory. If we go through to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7, we read this. 
After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding white palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who does salvation belong to? The God who sits on the throne. He has the exclusive right to offer salvation and to set its, ter- set its terms and limits. We do not get to choose who is too far gone. The innumerable, uh, innumerable and diverse people of every na- tribe and language show that. There are going to be people gathered around that throne in heaven that are dramatically different from you. There'll be people who have received the mercy of God that will shock you. Perhaps as shocking as the way God did it should be to us. That God sent his son Jesus to take on humanity, to become flesh and live amongst us. He lived, taught, suffered, and then willingly died on a humiliating cross to be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for our sins. If that doesn't shock you, you've got too used to the idea. And then when everything seemed lost, on the third day he rose again from that grave, victorious over death, and willing to offer forgiveness and life forever with him to all who believe. That means it was offered to you. No one here could be too different. Too old, too young, not the right fit. No one could be too far gone for his mercy. Not you, not your neighbour, not the loud kid in your class, the obnoxious co-worker, the entitled activist, or in the words of the old hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes. Salvation belongs to our incredibly merciful God. And then finally... Let's look at the gap between our theology and our heart. God shows us this gap in Jonah as Jonah turns to praise. Have a look at verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. The bottle looks good. His words sound good until we sniff a little more. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, 
Now she stands out really awkwardly in the construction of the poem. Uh, and it stands out in the Old Testament uh, compared to passages in uh, Genesis, Judges, Samuel, 2 Kings, Jeremiah, Lamentations. They're all in the text if you need them. Uh, his emphasis is misplaced. Jonah remembering God was not the turning point. It was God remembering Jonah. He has it completely the wrong way around from all of the Thanksgiving Psalms he seems to be replicating. And also, on top of that, absent from the prayer is any indication of repentance or omission of wrongdoing. His prayer has been about his physical danger. It's made no reference to the circumstances that that danger came from. Instead of that, Jonah turns to contrast his piety with that of others. He's still looking from a position of smug superiority instead of looking up to God, which again stands out compared to the psalm. Psalm 31.6, completely the opposite direction. It's not that what he's saying is wrong. It's absolutely true. But it's that he thinks that his response to the mercy of God makes him different. And the contrast seems to be with that of the sailors in chapter 1. Both of them have received the incredible mercy of God. But unlike them, Jonah is suggesting, he doubts their religious allegiance. He's assuming that they're just adding the Lord to their long list of other gods. Compared to them, he insists that God's mercy will show up and last in right theology and in actions that please God. It's sharp parody. The milk is off. The sailors have ironically already done all the things that Jonah has vowed in his smug piety to do. They've done it. It's not that sacrifices are bad. But we have to ask the question, is that what God wanted from Jonah? Sacrifices. Words of Samuel ring to mind. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Sacrifices and vows, even a pilgrimage to Nineveh, are not enough to change the condition of his heart which is exposed again in chapter 4. Those things are meaningless without being conformed to God's merciful character. There's a dangerous gap between our theology and our hearts. Jonah remains thankful for God's mercy without actually being merciful. Like Israel, he's grateful for God's salvation, but he has not accepted God's mission. Merciful salvation has become self-importance. Israel's experience of salvation was not supposed to be an end in itself. God saved them for his glory 
so that through them the other nations might come to know God. In accepting the Lord's salvation, Israel was accepting the Lord's mission. Those two things are inseparable. The true nature of repentance is not to some individual piety or some sort of private piety. It's not to saying the right Christian phrases, to knowing your Bible well, Jonah does that, or pointing out others that will miss out on the mercy of God. It's to the obedience that comes from faith, to grasping the implications of who God is, And what that means for his people's mission. Does that mean Jonah's too far gone? Even here, even with his still smug heart, God's mercy is more. God gives him a humiliating salvation and he does it for his own good. Have a look at verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. It's humiliating. In all Old Testament imagery, vomit is always negative. Um, we, had this, uh, we had a vomiting experience uh, on a recent uh, family uh, gathering. And as I was carrying kind of the pungent bucket, uh, my sister said to me, is it viral or bacterial? How should I know? She says, after 20 years as a nurse, you can smell the difference. I don't want to smell the difference. I don't want to be anywhere near it. The idea that that bucket could somehow end up on me is terrifying. Given how much fish smell normally, you have to assume that it's not better. God's mercy is as much in the vomit as it is in the fish. His chosen salvation takes aim at the prophet's misplaced pride. As Jonah squints up into the glaring sun, he kind of rubs his hands through his matted hair. It's a grainy combination of fish vomit, sand and salt water. He stinks. There is no smug satisfaction for Jonah. There is no glory in the way that God has saved him. God is more interested in Jonah's heart than he is in his physical circumstances. He's more interested in your heart than in your comfort. How is God working in your heart today? God's method of salvation through the cross of Jesus is nothing but humbling. It's a graphic reminder that you are the recipient of God's mercy. Everyone needed that same cure. You're no different. It was not triggered by your performance. It didn't come because you're more humble or more repentant than the rest. To believe that is to retain some of Jonah's smug superiority. Salvation belongs to the merciful God who sits upon the throne. Everything you have is a gift 
I invite you now as we take some time to pray to allow God to undo your misplaced pride so that you can delight in his mercy. You haven't arrived. It's not happily ever after. Your heart is not yet fully aligned to God. Like Jonah, you still need his mercy. It's there. Thank God that his mercy is more. Allow that beautiful mercy to go down deep in your heart, to thaw it, to make it new, to free it of its inward-looking sin so that your salvation is not an end in itself but an acceptance of your merciful Lord's mission. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. God, our Father, you are an incredibly merciful God. None of us are capable of doing the work that needs to be done in our hearts. We need your mercy. Even your severe mercy. Speak to us personally as your people here this morning. Father, for those gathered here that don't yet know your mercy, I thank you for them. Reach out and save them. Let them see you. Let them know you. Help them to know your acceptance and your warmth in a way that they can never imagine. For those who do know your mercy, don't let us accept it with smug superiority, but with deep humility. May we cry out more about the conditions of our hearts than the circumstances of our lives. Lead us in true repentance that we would love you and become like you, replicating your love, mercy and mission for your glory. Amen.